Welcome to the 15th episode of the Cornell Policy Review Podcast. My name is Ariana Rabancos, and I'm an associate editor at The Review. This podcast will explore a variety of policy issues through interviews with figures from around the world. In this episode, I got a chance to speak with Dr. Jean-Paul Faguet, a professor of the Political Economy of Development at the London School of Economics and the chair of the Decentralization Task Force at the Initiative for Policy Dialogue, to discuss the role of decentralization in development. We hope you enjoy. So can you tell us a bit about your role as the Decentralization Task Force Chair at the Initiative for Policy Dialogue? Yes, of course. The Initiative for Policy Dialogue was set up by Professor Joe Stiglitz um, around 2000-2001 as a forum that brings together academics and policymakers to think about some of the biggest issues and problems across the world in development, but also in in the, the richer OECD, EU, and North American economies. And I'm the head of what's called the Decentralization Task Force. So the group is organized into issue groups. The, the initiative is organized into groups by issue and also by country. So I happen to be the, the chair of the Decentralization Task Force, which brings together academics and senior policymakers, but especially people who are more kind of reflective and uh, and, and think more broadly as opposed to people who are down in the trenches actually doing things about the, the, the potential that decentralization has to do positive things and also negative things and how we can try to adapt decentralizations in the real world or propose them where appropriate for countries that are thinking of undertaking these reforms. And we've met a few times, um, both times in, two times, both times in New York at Columbia University, and the second time led to a, a fairly big book um, published with Oxford, and then also a special issue of World Development, which is the premier journal in, in uh, international development. Right. Thank you. So then, as chair of this task force, what have you observed are the most common and significant enablers and barriers that leaders face in pushing for and implementing decentralization? Well, decentralization is a, a funny kind of reform because it's on the agenda and has been implemented in most of the world's countries. In fact, the World Bank estimated in 1999 that between 80 and 100% of the world's countries had actually experimented recently with some form of decentralization. And since then, 35 or more countries have announced new or deepening decentralization reforms. So we can say that it's going on essentially all over the world. At the same time, it's also the case in, in my own view, and this is something that we realized when we were writing Is Decentralization Good for Development, the, the 2015 book I mentioned, that most politicians don't want to decentralize, i.e. in terms of their rational interests as politicians who put a huge amount of time into gaining power, either being elected or th through some other electoral mean, depending, depending on the country. But a huge amount of, of energy um, and effort into becoming senior politicians and policymakers, they don't actually want to give away power and resources to other people that they don't directly control, which is the meaning of decentralization. That's it inevitably what it, what it is and how it should work when it's implemented well. So there's a funny sort of paradox in that everybody's talking about it and most countries appear to be doing it, and yet the people charged with doing it, it's not really in their interest. They shouldn't want to do it. 
or at least at some level it should go against their interests in a very direct way. Um, so what we observe across the world is that most decentralizations don't seem to work as intended, and it's our contention um, at the decentralization task force that most decentralizations that have been announced in the world either are not implemented at all, meaning they remain dead letter reforms, or they're partially implemented but with a lot of pushback from the central bureaucracy or from political parties or from the opposition that don't want this devolution of power and resources to happen. And so you, you end up in a really unsatisfactory halfway house where they kind of made some changes, but not completely. That's interesting. So it really boils down, I think, the incentives. Um, and yet in your book, this is the 2015 book you mentioned, Is De Decentralization Good for Development? You cite four ways in which decentralization can further development. So we can focus specifically on creating competition among subnational governments. How does decentralization bring this about? And what are the trade-offs to be cautious about? So it's useful to do the mental experiment where you consider a country that's highly centralized and then it decentralizes. And so imagine the change from all policy happening at the central level decisions made by central government um, versus a large number of decentralized units, which might be states or localities or often both, which are taking their own independent decisions with their own resources. Um, so the first thing that happens when you decentralize is you get a lot of different policy experiments, lots of different local governments doing different things. I'm, I'm going to, for, for purposes of simplicity, I'm going to refer to national or centralized versus local. But when I say local, I mean decentralized governments, which might include meso levels of state or provinces, just for simplicity. So different local governments will do different things. Now, so immediately you get experimentation and you, you make it possible to have interesting comparisons, which you didn't have, or you certainly had to a much, much um, uh, smaller extent under centralized policy making, because central governments tend to do the same thing everywhere. So they have one education policy or one health policy. I'm simplifying a bit, but not that much. There, there's much less variation in policy making by centralized governments than there are in decentralized governments, because lots of locally elected politicians can decide to do different things, because different places have different conditions, different challenges, different resources, um, and people in different places just have different ideas. Once you have different policies being implemented within the same country that opens the door to comparisons, which people inevitably do. So there is a, a latent level of competition that can be fairly intense, where the people in one municipality, for example, say, look, our government is corrupt, or even if it's not corrupt, it's just not doing very much. They're kind of sitting on their hands, not doing very much. Next door, their local government is doing a lot. The mayor and the local council have just paved the streets or they're building lots of new schools and health posts or whatever it may be. Why doesn't our government behave more like them? And that, through decentralization, opens the door for productive competition in the sense of electing the bums out of power and re-electing someone else who's who are electing someone new into power who will do things better because, you know, the people in, in village A can go across the border to village B or village C and see how things are going on there. Um, so it just opens the door through normal um, uh, sort of informal mechanisms for, for competition, latent competition. But also in the book, in one of our chapters, we have a couple of colleagues who work on China 
who talk about explicit competition. So the Chinese government has set up um, best municipality prizes, which go to the cleanest municipalities or the one with the most efficient government with the lowest costs or the one that has had the biggest improvement in, in education or health. There are whole systems of competition um, that have been set up explicitly to force municipalities to compete. And many municipalities across this vast country have thrown themselves into these competitions and you see lots of changes in policy, changes in expenditure and investment and lots of real effects. So these competitions really have important effects in development terms. So you mentioned social learning in as sort of a benefit of decentralization in your book as well. So how does decentralization foster a culture of social learning in governments? Right. So social learning, it's important to, to define first what we mean by that in the book. Mm. Um, for, for students of the concept of social capital, um, Pierre Bourdieu or Robert Putnam's concept and other people of what social capital is, social learning might be thought of as a dynamic micro um, mechanism for building social capital. So social learning means the extent to which, and I'm going to refer here to democratic context, there's something like this that goes on in a different way in non-democratic context, it's too complicated if we talk about in different government types, let's just stick to democracy, where anyway our thinking is clearer. Social learning happens with decentralization when you get, again, do the decentralization thought experiment in your head. When you get local government for the first time, you get local policy making for the first time that primarily benefits local people who are also paying local taxes that pays part of the cost of the primary schools and healthcare and roads and street lighting and trash collection and other areas of you know, really primarily local public policy that are now, these decisions will now be taken by the local government. So social learning is the process of people revealing what their preferences are, discussing through politics, through participation, through local planning um, initiatives, etc., what it is that concerns them. Now, I as an individual have a number of wants and needs, some of which are purely private, right? So I like eating pasta, and I like drinking wine, and I'm hungry tonight, so I go and I get myself my dinner, and I need a new pair of shoes, and none of these is in the remit of public policy. These are all private concerns that I mainly worry about for myself and my family. But there are a number of public issues, um, and there are a large number of public issues that we can discuss and that we have to prioritize that are the, the natural problems of policy. Like, is the street lighting okay? Are the streets safe from criminality? Are the are the streets safe in terms of traffic? Do we have a, a, a public transit system, um, et cetera, et cetera? How much are we investing in health versus education versus national defense? So these are, these are all issues, not of the private economy and, and private affairs, but the public economy and public policy. Different people have different ideas. So, so social learning happens first when people start to discuss, not, not to think inside you know, myself, am I hungry, do I need a new pair of shoes, but public things need to be discussed. And so what do different people want and what do they prioritize? But by discussion, you learn much more about the issues and you may realize that an issue you, you weren't focusing on is actually more important than the thing you are focusing on. So I'm mainly worried about the potholes in my street, but actually because I discuss with my neighbors and other people 
um, in my municipality and discussions that happen through the media um, and, and experts weigh in and politicians put forward proposals. And through all of this process, I may realize that potholes are, you know, they're not trivial, but there's a more important issue, which is that people are dying of a communicable disease in my community, and I just hadn't thought about that enough or I hadn't realized that. And that's something that's a more urgent problem. No? So social learning, first of all, is in finding out what other people care about and discussing it, and this process of aggregating individuals' needs into a public ordering of the most important things. That's the first step. The next step is trying to implement, is proposing a, a platform of these ideas that is coherent. So a politician comes along and says, right, we're going to prioritize the communicable disease, we're going to do something to try to, to tap down this disease that people are dying from. Um, but I'm also prioritizing some other things, and I have a, a budget proposal, and I'm going to make trade-offs to allow me to finance these things. So I'm going to prioritize the disease now and really potholes till next year, and I may have to raise taxes or, or de-jig the, the, the local taxes um, that we're collecting and maybe apply for a, uh, for, for a national government transfer because there's a public health emergency, for example. And so that is the second phase of social learning, where you trade off different priorities and you realize what the cost is going to be and how you're going to share the cost out within the community and within the, the, the economy. And then the third level is how do principles, meaning voters um, and, and other important interests like businesses and, um, and, and thinkers and intellectuals, for example, in the media, how do they keep governments and politicians, how do they hold them to account for actually doing the things that they promised to do, which got them elected? At the end of that process of aggregation of preferences, then you, know, you, you run an election and somebody gets elected and everybody else loses, and then the people who got elected have to be held to account to actually act on the things they said they were going to do. And so social learning happens there too. Um, and so we, in terms of you know, how, to, how policy implementation happens or doesn't happen and how to hold these people to account to then update your, your knowledge about your preferences over different politicians as well as different policy areas um, and to change voting behavior in the next election, you know, two, three, four years down the road. So in a sense, social learning is about the, the creation and strengthening of social capital in the service of fine-tuning how democracy works. And it happens at the local level, and it also happens at the regional and national levels. But social learning is kind of turbocharged at the local level because the contacts that happen in these policy discussions are much more personal. It is much more face-to-face and vivo, as we say in Spanish. You know, it's really direct as opposed to national policy making, which happens much more through intermediaries, through the media and through focus groups and through polling firms, you know, and, and it's much more direct and so much less powerful in terms of the human experience. So looking at like your experience, from your experience working in and studying decentralization in Bolivia, what would you say are the key factors that drove the country to, to decentralize? Ah, okay. This is this is a, a very interesting and surprisingly big topic. So as I said before, to, in answer to your first question, it's really not directly in the interests of politicians to decentralize. Yes. Because the definition is giving away things that they spent probably their whole careers or their whole lives trying to attain. So why they should turn around and give it away is, is a big black hole. So, and yet countries do it. And in the case of Bolivia, they really did it. And they, they did a decentralization which was... Um, 
which was which was designed in a straightforward and what we call a sincere way, meaning they really intended to decentralize, they just didn't want to pretend they were going to do it. And then they really implemented that real decentralization. Um, so it, it must be the case that there was some powerful reason that overcame the, the strong, rational disinterest in giving away our resources. So in, in Bolivia, the reason they decentralize, and this is a, another chapter of the book that I, I co-authored with Doni Sanchez Rosada, who was the president of Bolivia at the time who took the decision and drove decentralization through, and in particular through a government and through a, a political party and coalition that didn't really buy it at the beginning, but he drove it through and convinced them um, and then implemented it. There are two or three big reasons. The first one is that he was the, the president from and the head of the MNR political party, the Movimiento, Movimiento Nacionalista Revolucionario, um, the National Revolutionary, Nationalist Revolutionary Movement, which was the party that had led the 1952 revolution in Bolivia and had done land reform. So Bolivia had an almost feudal economy of very big landowners and mine owners and lots of disenfranchised peasants who, in the main, did not speak Spanish, the, the language of the country, the, the language of business in particular, and government and the elite, you know, the, the, the national language. They spoke different indigenous languages, who didn't get educated, who couldn't vote, um, and who were very poor, and worked as kind of bonded labor on the farms in the main. So the, that government led by the MNR did the revolution and then pushed through land reform and won the, the undying loyalty of a whole generation of people who got the land and then their children. But by the third generation, they were too young, they didn't have the memory of land reform and they were starting to vote for different political parties. And in particular in Bolivia, as in many developing countries, certainly all through Latin America, you had the rise of populist political parties. And these populists sort of gave away gifts at election rallies and promised that if you vote for me, I'll give you a blue bucket for one party whose, whose color was blue, or I would um, put you on the radio and let you complain about the authorities for a different political party led by a, a radio celebrity. Um, and they were taking away votes from the established parties, and in particular from, from the MNR. So Goni Sanchez and Osada thought, if we push through decentralization, we're going to get local governments that really respond to, to local voters. And so they designed the reform in that way to make those local governments accountable and transparent and more obviously um, answerable to what local voters wanted to do. Most of these local governments were rural local governments. It's, it's, it's a relatively large country in world terms. It's twice the geographic area of France but with only about 10 million people, so you know, most of the country is, is rural municipalities. So they created hundreds of rural municipalities, um, and they thought these local governments, by virtue of, of being more transparent and more accountable to local voters than the central government had always been before, will provide services that are better, and then people will like that, and they'll start voting for us again, like they had done before. So to summarize, the MNR, the party of the revolution, wanted to regain the loyalty of especially rural Bolivians, and they thought this reform would win them probably a couple of generations, so like 50 years of majorities and elections if they decentralize the country. So notice that they're not decentralizing primarily because of the fiscal or political effects 
of changing the fiscal architecture of a country, right? They're not doing it because of transfer mechanisms um, and voting rules. They're doing it with an explicitly electoral logic of trying to win elections. And so in another paper that I have um, with Mavish Shami, a colleague here at the LSE, we analyze Bolivia and Pakistan and propose like a concept that we call instrumental incoherence, which is when politicians and reformers do something, but what's actually driving the reform is not the logical outcome of the reform, but some side effect, which is completely unrelated to what the reform purports to be about, um, but it solves some immediate political problem. And so in the Bolivian case, the immediate, immediate political problem is that the government was electorally weak and the MNR by itself could no longer win elections, whereas they had won elections with up to 98% of the vote in the immediate aftermath of the revolution. And they were in long-term decline, so it's going to arrest and reverse that long-term decline. Um, even though the, the immediate effect of the reform was actually create hundreds of governments and devolve money and power to locally elected politicians that the MNR could not necessarily control unless their own people got elected, right? Um, that's what they did, but the reason they did it was to undermine the Populist Party and win back the, the rural vote. But the other main reason was that there were centrifugal forces in Bolivia, especially in the Department of Santa Cruz, which is the richest, fastest growing uh, department in the country. There are nine departments in Bolivia. Santa Cruz um, is on the border with Brazil, uh, or has a border with Brazil, so it's a big department. Um, and they were threatening secession explicitly in order to get more money out of the central government. And they did this repeatedly to get more transfers because they, they produce a lot of oil and gas and they're a rich department. And they said, central government is keeping too much of the money. And, and we want decentralization. And they were able, so the, the in Congress, the loyalties of the deputies, the diputados from Santa Cruz actually overrode their party loyalties. So the, the, the block of deputies from Santa Cruz were more coherent amongst themselves than were its members to their various parties. And he was worried he wasn't going to be able to govern because these people were stopping government business and demanding bigger and bigger transfers. And so he had the, the genius idea to decentralize, to, to accede to their demand, but to decentralize beneath the level of the regions down to the local level as a way of pulling up the rug from under these business elites in the capital city. So Santa Cruz, the capital city, would get its municipal government, but they would not create a, a, a state or regional government of the Department of Santa Cruz. They would go beneath them to something like 50 municipalities in Santa Cruz and 300 plus in the country. And that's where the money and the resources would go. And so they would basic, that would basically kill off the decentralization um, dialogue or debate in Bolivia because they, they would give into it, but in a way that these business elites weren't expecting. So then I think to tie it all together, um, just to give us something to think about, what conditions then make decentralization the optimal policy choice or direction for a country, especially for developing ones? So the things that make decentralization a good idea for a country, first of all, is, is the bigger and more diverse a country is, the more the need is for policy heterogeneity and so, so the less the less amenable centralized government is because central governments have a tendency to, to make homogeneous policy and you know, less variation in their policy. It's not 
logically necessary. It's just that we tend to see that. You know? um, also, it makes sense to put policymakers physically closer to the voters they're serving and in bigger, more heterogeneous countries. And, you know, parenthetically, most developing countries are bigger and more diverse than most developed countries because, you know, by number, most most of the countries in the world that are developed are European, and European countries are relatively much smaller and less diverse than Brazil or Philippines or China, for example. They're, they're less diverse in every sense, and, and typically physically and, and demographically a lot smaller. So decentralization is sort of the natural preserve of countries that are big, diverse, and I would say developing countries as well. But then things that you need to make it work well, um, the, the theory of democratic decentralization is far more advanced. We have a much better handle on how it works and, and when it works well versus badly. And, and the way that I um, prefer to define decentralization is as democratic devolution. So, you know, I would say, I, I would immediately favor any democracy for decentralization over decentralizing in an autocracy or dictatorship. Although dictatorships do do that. China had a decentralization which had important effects but to my mind no one yet knows exactly how it works because you know how are local officials in a non-democratic system made to be accountable to local voters it's not obvious if you don't have voting exactly how that happens if those officials have to account to the party or to the central government but my point is there is something going on there that's interesting but knowledge is much less advanced so i would say big diverse countries that are democracies um, and then what's really important in terms of, of other considerations that you have to get right for decentralization to work is, an, uh, is democratic competition that's free and fair and substantive. So a level playing field, um, the, the, sorts of, um, the sorts of limits and controls on electoral activity that we know about but that often get forgotten. So you, you, you can't have capture by elites or you should, you should try. I mean, that's a nice phrase, you can't have capture by elites. You should try to, to guard against elite capture. You should try to guard against the government favoring its own political party or one group of, over another. You should try to have um, some sort of equitable basis for campaign finance so that very rich people or companies can't favor parties that favor them in return once they're in office. Um, so free, fair, open electoral competition um, and, and when you have that, you tend to get better policy making, and then all of the decentralized mechanisms that have to do with competition and accountability that we've been discussing operate much better. All right. Thank you so much, JP. That wraps up our interview. To our listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Cornell Policy Review Podcast. If you are interested in receiving notifications for future podcasts and articles, please subscribe to our mailing list on the CPR website. You can also find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter.